Mark chapter 14. It says, And they, meaning Jesus and his disciples, they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And Jesus said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And Jesus said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. The first thing I need you to see in this passage is the significance of this place called Gethsemane. And the moment in time that this is all happening. See, this is a garden called Gethsemane, the scriptures say. But it says that they left Jerusalem and they went to the Mount of Olives to a place called the Garden of Gethsemane. What they were doing, the, Jesus and the disciples, if you read earlier in Mark chapter 14, just before this, they had just come from the Passover meal. The Last Supper, where Jesus told his disciples, he said, my body is going to be broken and my blood is going to be poured out like wine. Every time you take of this meal, do it in remembrance of me. And the disciples, they didn't really understand what Jesus was saying, but Jesus knew what he was saying. And he knew that Judas had already betrayed him and he knew that Peter would deny him. And it says that they took the body, the bread and the wine. It says they sang a hymn together and then they left Jerusalem and they went to the foot of the Mount of Olives. And in order to get from Jerusalem where they were where the upper room was where they were having the Passover meal in order to get from Jerusalem to the Garden of Gethsemane they're on two separate mountains and you actually have to cross what's called the Kidron Valley so you go down a hill and then you cross a valley and then you go up a hill to where Gethsemane is and the Kidron Valley today there's just a highway that goes through there but in Jesus's day there was a river and it was actually the river that the city of Jerusalem would drain its drainage would go into that river. And if you think this is Passover, this is the week of Passover that all this is happening. So that meant that there had been animal sacrifices in the streets that whole week. And that meant that as Jesus and the disciples were walking through this riverbed, it is very likely that that riverbed was red with blood. And Jesus was crossing through that creek and he was, I mean, the, the blood may have even been staining his robes or his ankles. And he, in his mind, he knew what was coming. Those, those innocent lambs that had been sacrificed, he knew that he would be the lamb that would be sacrificed. But it says they crossed the river and they went to a place, place called Gethsemane. And the name Gethsemane literally means oil press. And the garden, if you've ever seen it, it, you can look it up on Google image or whatever. The garden of Gethsemane, it's lined with olive trees. And the name literally means oil press. And the symbolism here is significant. Jesus, it would not have been lost on him that he was in an olive garden, not olive garden, but (laughs) come on. All right. He was in an olive grove called oil press. The symbolism here would not have been lost on him because he knew what the next few hours would bring. See, we're modern New Yorkers. 
And we don't know, most of us haven't spent, I'm just guessing, most of us haven't spent much time around first century olive presses. But the way that olive presses work, look at this picture here. This is the first step in an olive press. You would take all the olives, and when olives are ripe, they're hard. And you would put them in this basin, and you would take this millstone, and a donkey or some sort of animal would, walk, would just walk in circles, and it would crush these, olive, these olives into like fine ground, like, like coffee grinds. They would be crushed, and then you would take all the crushed olive grounds and you would put them into these little baskets. Those little to the right there, those are just little like 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 rope baskets. And they would put the olives uh, in those baskets, and then they would be pressed on a contraption like this. They would be pressed down with uh, like weights of heavy stones, and they would put stones upon stones upon stones. They would crush these olives, these, these baskets, and they would squeeze, and they would push, then crush. And so much pressure would be put onto these baskets that the oil from the olives would then flow out from there into that little reservoir underneath it. And three times those, would, those baskets would be crushed. The first time... It would be crushed. That's the finest oil. And that would go to the temple. The second time that it would be crushed, that would be like good oil that we would use for that they would use for food or medicine. But then that third time when they just drain every last bit of oil out of those olives, that is the oil that would be used for lamps. It would be burned. It would be consumed. It would be completely burned up. And Jesus in this garden, if you continue reading in Mark chapter 14, we know that he prayed this prayer three times. That symbolism is not a coincidence. It's alarming. Jesus knew he was being crushed in this garden. Jesus knew he was being crushed. Isaiah 53 says he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed For our sins, the punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed. It goes on in Isaiah 53 to say, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Jesus is praying in this garden called oil press and he prays three times. He there's symbolism there. That's not that's not a coincidence. Jesus knows he's being crushed. And it says he's greatly distressed and troubled. The author of this gospel says greatly distressed and troubled. And now there are a number of clues as to why Jesus was so stressed out, why he was troubled. First, we knew we know that he knew that Jesus or that Judas had betrayed him at this point. He knew that. Judas had betrayed him. He knows it's just mere moments before he is going to be arrested and betrayed with a kiss. Second, he knew that Peter would deny him. One of his best friends. The scriptures say that when the, she- when the shepherd is struck, the sheep will scatter. And Jesus knew that when he is going to be struck on that cross, that even his closest friends would scatter. But third, we know that he is all alone in this garden. His three closest friends, Peter, James, and John, were with him. And Jesus said, he gave them, he asked one thing of them. He said, hey, would you guys stay awake for me while I pray in the garden? And they all fell asleep. Jesus was completely and utterly alone. The Son of God who healed the sick, gave sight to the blind, welcomed sinners and outcasts. Even these disciples, He had given them so much, yet they were asleep. 
The very Son of God, the man who spent his life serving others in this moment of his greatest need, he was all alone. And some of you know just how distressing loneliness can be. You know how painful loneliness is. Jesus has felt that to the nth degree. He's been there. He knows your pain. But this isn't what's plaguing Jesus the most. It's not loneliness that's plaguing Jesus. It's something far, far greater. Jesus says, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. In Luke's gospel, it says that Jesus, being in agony, prayed more earnestly. And listen to this. His sweat in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was praying, he was praying so earnestly and so in such agony that his sweat became like drops of blood falling from the ground. You can actually look this up on WebMD. This is a real thing. There's a medical condition called hematridosis. It's very rare, but it occurs when someone undergoes immense stress. Many of you, um, if you've ever had an anxiety attack, you know how painful that is? Your chest is tightening, but then you get done and you can't you hardly breathe, but your face is blood red and you can feel like all the blood in your, fa- like in your body and your face. Anybody ever been there? What happens with hematridosis sets in, it's when these rare cases when anxiety gets so intense that the blood capillaries in the face burst and blood then sweats out of the pores. This is a real thing. I actually found out this week that one of my friends has experience with this condition. Uh, My friend Rodel Hernandez, who I used to be uh, on staff at a church with, his five-year-old son several years ago, um, they went to a community pool. You know, they were playing. He has multiple kids. And parents' worst nightmare, hey, where's my son? Can't find his son swimming at the top of the water and looks over and sees his five-year-old son at the bottom of the pool. So the lifeguards get him, they rescue him, they revive him. He goes to the hospital. He he recovered with no permanent issues. The kid was fine. But as he was recovering, Rodell noticed that his son in the hospital room while he was recovering, he noticed that he had these purple blotches all over his face. And he asked the doctor, he said, Doc, what's up with his face? And the doctor said, hematridosis. He said when he was screaming at the bottom of that pool, Likely he was in such fear and agony that the blood vessels in his face burst and he was literally sweating drops of blood. That's Jesus in the garden. Jesus is in such agony that he's sweating blood. I don't want you to miss this. The very Son of God... The one who spoke creation into existence. The very one whom the book of Colossians says holds all things together was in this level of agony. The son of God sweating drops of blood. In Luke's gospel, uh, Luke even mentions that an angel had to come and minister and strengthen, minister to and strengthen Jesus. Some scholars say, That if it weren't for this angel, Jesus may have died in the garden. Jesus needed supernatural strength to not just be overcome with such agony that the agony alone killed him. And now I want to stop here and I want to say this. No other religion that I know of shows us a God who suffers like us. I can't think of one. 
But in Christ, we have a God who knows our pain. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet is without sin. In this moment, Jesus felt all the sorrow of human existence. He felt the literal pain of darkness. Overcoming him. He felt the pain of loneliness. His friends had fallen asleep. One had, he felt the pain of betrayal. Judas had betrayed him for just a few pieces of money. He felt the pain of depression. It says he was greatly distressed and troubled. In the Greek, those are serious, serious words that are used. Emphatic words of what it means to be distressed. Jesus knew what it was like to be depressed. He knew what it was like to have anxiety. He was sweating drops of blood. Jesus even knew the pain of pain. Like the cross was before him. He knows, I mean, nails in his hands, crown of thorns in his head. He knows the pain of loneliness, darkness, betrayal, depression, anxiety, and pain itself. No matter what you have been through, or no matter what you are going through, God is not some distant deity off in another galaxy somewhere telling you to suck it up. God puts on human flesh in the form of Jesus and enters into our pain. We do not have a great high priest who is unable to sympathize even with our greatest weaknesses. Whatever you're going through today, Jesus has been there. I can follow someone who's been through the pain that I've been through because I know they understand. Jesus, how much more so does he know whatever pain you've experienced? He has been through it. He knows and you can follow him. You can trust him. And sometimes I know that God can feel so distant. But when you look at Jesus in this garden of Gethsemane, we do not see a distant deity We see a God who puts on flesh, enters into our world, and knows the pain we feel. And I want you all to be encouraged by this. Because Gethsemane shows us a God who knows our pain, who has gone before us. And because of this, we can trust this God. But that's not the main point of Gethsemane. I've heard many people say, you know, I'm in my own Gethsemane. No, you're not. Do not belittle what Jesus went through in this garden by saying, I've gone through my own Gethsemane. Because we're about to find out that what Jesus goes through in this garden, he's the only one that has ever had to walk through this. This is why he says, he says, remove this cup from me. I remember several years ago, you guys remember the movie, The Passion of the Christ, when that came out? Um, I remember I was a teenager and I remember my church who, you know, I'd always been told in church that you're not allowed to see R-rated movies. But when it's about the crucifixion of Christ, apparently that was okay. And so my church rented out a movie theater. And they, they rented out the movie theater and several people from the church went to watch this movie. And I remember when the movie was over, just dead silence. Because if you haven't seen this movie, it is a brutal and very realistic depiction of what a Roman execution looked like. And I remember when the movie was over, the credits rolled, the lights in the theater came up and nobody left and nobody said a word. Because we were just floored by what we had seen. And we were left speechless at the very utterly gruesome nature of the cross, as we should have been. But when I think about that, 
You know, Jesus isn't the only person who died a horrific death in this world. I mean, thousands of other people died of Roman execution just like Jesus. In fact, we know that two other men were crucified alongside Jesus that same day. Peter would be crucified later in his life upside down, traditions tell us. And if you look throughout history, you'll find that there are many heroic men and women who have gone to their deaths with great pride. Polycarp, who was a student of the Apostle John, he's one of my favorite Christian martyrs. He said, um, when somebody who's being burned at the stake, and he said to his executors, he said, the fire you threaten lasts only an hour and is quenched with just a little. But what do you know of the fires of judgment? And this is what he said. He looks to his executors and says, so come on, boys, bring the fire. That's, a, that's cool. He died with pride and courage and boldness. Church history is filled with accounts of Christians singing as they were burned at the stake. Christians who were citing scripture as they were being stoned to death. Why were they able to go to their death with such courage and boldness and pride and joy, yet Jesus was agonizing? Was Jesus more cowardly than them? Why is Jesus so scared of something that many other people faced with courage? It sure seems odd, doesn't it, that Jesus' followers were able to face death with even greater courage than he You may have heard of Socrates' death. Socrates took a goblet of hemlock poison, and according to Plato, without trembling or changing color or expression, Socrates raised the cup to his lips and very carefully and quietly drained it to the dregs, and he told his friends as he was dying, keep quiet and be brave. He died without fear or sorrow or protest. Yet Jesus in this garden, when the cup is placed before him, he says, take it away from me. I don't want to drink it. One author asks, so was Socrates? Were the early Christians? Was Socrates braver than Jesus? He says, or were their cups filled with different poisons? See, when Jesus is shaking and agonizing in the garden, it's not because he was scared of the cross. Jesus had no problem talking about his death. He had been doing it for three years and the disciples never paid attention to him. Jesus didn't fear the nails or the whips or the spears. He wasn't agonizing in Gethsemane over the cross. He was agonizing over the cup. And you go, well, what's in the cup that he didn't want to drink? Remember, they just left the Passover meal. And the Passover is a celebration of God rescuing his people from slavery in Egypt. And when the the, the people would drink the Passover wine, the custom was to drink from four cups. They had four cups in the Passover meal. And they would quote Exodus 6, 6 through 7. The first cup was the cup of sanctification where they would say they would drink and they would quote uh, where God says, I will bring you out of slavery in Egypt. Second cup was the cup of praise. I will deliver you from bondage. The third cup was the cup of redemption. I will redeem you. And then finally, they would drink the cup of acceptance where, Jesus, where God says, I will be your God. And I hear that. And I'm like, I want to drink those cups. Like, I want to drink the cup of sanctification and praise and redemption and acceptance. Those the cups of God's favor. Yes, sign me up. I want I bet the wine in those are sweet. That's what I want. But all throughout the Old Testament, there's reference to a fifth cup that no one would ever dare to drink. 
Isaiah 51, 17, Stand up, O Jerusalem, you have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of His wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. Jeremiah 25, 15, Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I am sending among them. Psalm 75, for the, in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. This cup is also mentioned in Ezekiel 33, Psalm 22, Psalm 69, Psalm 79, and Isaiah 51. It's mentioned in the New Testament as well, Revelation 14, 10. He also will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. The cup that was before Jesus was the very cup of God's wrath. And we don't like to think of God being angry. We don't like to think of God having wrath or being, we, don't, we like to think uh, of God being love. We say, I, I, God is love. He's not wrath, but you can't have love without anger. You can't. Anybody who's a parent knows you can't love your child without also having anger. Love without anger is just sentimentality. My daughter the other night, we in our little bedtime prayers, she told me that a kid laughed at her at school, made fun of her. I got angry, (laughs) like furious. See, I love my daughter, so I hate bullying. Love and wrath are two sides to the same coin. See, this is why we have a judicial system in America, because we supposedly love our neighbors. So we punish those who do harm to our neighbors. Those who abuse children, those who hurt or disrespect others, we punish them to the fullest extent of the law because that is loving and that is just. You can't have love without anger. Love without anger, it's just sentimentality. It's meaningless. God is love, the scriptures say. Therefore, he is also a God of wrath. He hates anything that harms those whom he loves. In Christianity, we call this word sin. God hates sin. Because sin, God hates sin because sin harms us. Sin separates us from the love and the presence of God and separates us from others. The scriptures say that God hates sin. And sin isn't just things, it is things that we do wrong toward one another. It's things we do wrong when we disobey God. But sin is also just the brokenness of the world. Cancer. You don't have it, you don't get cancer because you did something wrong, but it's cancer exists in this world because this world is broken. Sin is not just all that you've done wrong, sin is all that has gone wrong in this world. And God hates those things. Remember when Lazarus died? Jesus wept, he was angry. That death had taken his friend. And it is God's hatred and wrath towards sin and sickness and death that causes Jesus to go to the cross. God isn't angry because he's irritable or ornery, but it's because he loves you and me. And that which which separates us from him actually infuriates him and he wants to destroy it. The most merciful, most glorious thing God could ever do is destroy sin. But the problem is we are sinners You are, I am, we all are. And so how can God destroy sin without destroying sinners? That's the question. 
And the answer is Jesus. You see, the cross is not... the. The cross is not just the Romans beating up a nice guy from Galilee who told everybody to love each other. That's not what makes the cross gruesome. What makes the cross gruesome is that God the Father is placing all of our sins onto His innocent Son and then pouring out all of His wrath onto Himself. See, Jesus is not scared of the cross. He's scared of the cup. The cup of God's wrath. And listen, I don't have the mind to comprehend or the words to describe what Jesus was feeling in this garden this evening. But I do know that Jesus, the sinless one who had spent eternity in perfect union with the Father, is now praying to his Father and hearing nothing but silence. Can you imagine what that must have been like for him? It says that the Son and the Father and the Spirit are one. But in this garden, it sure seems like there is a fracture in that relationship. And the son who has experienced the loving union of the father for all of eternity now prays to God and hears silence. What would that be like? Somehow in this one moment, Jesus experiences the equivalency, the equivalent of an eternity in hell for us in one moment. Because, see, that is the essence of hell. Hell is the complete abandonment by God. To be in hell, to experience hell, is to be completely and utterly separated from God. And Jesus prayed in verse 36. He said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. I remember when I was in college, I was having a conversation with a friend who wasn't a Christian. But we were talking about Christianity. And he said, you know, why couldn't God just forgive sins without, all the, without the cross? Why couldn't God just forgive sin? And I don't know how I answered it back then. It was probably wrong. But I do know this after looking in Gethsemane that Jesus asked the exact same question. He said, God, Father, is there any other way? All things are possible for you, right? You can forgive sin without destroying me. In the 11th century, there was a pastor teacher named Anselm of Canterbury. And he had a student named Bozo, seriously. And Bozo said, why couldn't God forgive without the cross? Why did all the bloodshed need to happen? Why did Jesus need to be a sacrifice? And Anselm answered, Bozo, you have not yet considered how heavy the weight of sin really is. I want you to think of all the worst atrocities in world history. All the abuses, all the perversions of justice, all the slavery, all the genocide, all the murder, all of it. Every single one of those sins was poured into that cup that Jesus had to drink. And not only those, but every single lie you've ever told... Every harsh word you've ever uttered to another person, every lustful thought, every instance of jealousy or bitterness that you've ever felt, all of that was placed on Jesus. Psalm 130 said, uh, Psalm 130, David wrote, If you, O Lord, should mark our sins, who could stand? David says, look, God, if you just counted my sins against me, it would knock me flat on my back. But yet Jesus is taking all the sins of the world onto himself. And that's why he's staggering in the garden. God takes all the sins of the world. They are poured into that cup. And the the heavenly father puts it in front of him and says, you've got to drink it. And Jesus says, I don't want to. I really don't want to. If there's any other way, take it from me. 
See, Jesus wasn't scared of the cross. He was scared of the cup. And Jesus then says, and this is the, this is the central point of Gethsemane. He says, not my will, but yours. See, this was the prayer of Jesus. He knew the pain. He knew the shame. He knew that for a moment on the cross, he would be separated from his heavenly father. For all eternity, he had been one with the father. Yet on the cross, somehow, I don't understand it, they would be separated. And that terrified Jesus. But he said, I don't want to do it, but not my will, but yours be done. And the son was separated from the father so that you and I could be called children of God. Hebrews 12, 2 says, let us look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our Faith, faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Jesus feared the cup, but love is greater than fear, isn't it? His love is greater than his fear. Jesus loves you and me so much that with joy he endured the cross so that he could redeem you and me from our sin. Jesus even loved his disciples who were sleeping. He loved Peter who would deny him, Judas who would betray him, his neighbors who would soon shout crucify him. Jesus even loved the Roman soldiers who very soon would be ripping and shredding the skin off his back with whips and placing a crown of thorns on his head. Jesus loved all of those who stood before him. And for that reason, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross for you and for me, for us. And here's what happened on the cross. All of our sin was placed on Jesus and Jesus took the punishment for all of it. But all of Jesus's perfection, the Bible calls calls it righteousness, was then placed on you and me and anyone who would receive the gift of Jesus's righteousness. Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath so that you and I could drink the cup of his redemption. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, says, For our sake God made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. See, the cross is the pivotal moment in world history. And in light of the cross, we have to ask, we, we have a choice. And that choice is, what cup will we drink? See, we can choose to pay for our own sins if we want to. I don't need Jesus. Okay, drink the cup then. Because that's what's asked of you. Or, Jesus can take your cup, He can turn it to His lips, He can drink it to the dregs, and then fill it up with His mercy, and then hand you His cup of salvation to drink. Psalm 116.13 says, I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I hope that this is true of all of us in this room. I hope this is true of you, that you would take not the cup of your sin, but that you would take the cup of his righteousness and that you would lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. The scriptures say that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will drink the cup of salvation. One author writes, he says, as we watch Jesus pray in agony in Gethsemane, he has every right to turn his tearful eyes toward you and me and shout, this is your cup. You are responsible for this. It's your sin. You drink it. This cup should rightfully be thrust into my hand and yours, but instead Jesus freely takes our cup himself so that from the cross he can look down at you and me, whisper our names and say, I drained this cup for you. For you who have lived in defiance of me, for you who have hated me, for you who have opposed me, I drink it all for you. 
He took our cup, drank it to the dregs, and then offered us his cup of salvation that is full and overflowing. See, this is what the Garden of Gethsemane and the cross and the resurrection invites us into. See, if you're not a Christian and you're like, what is going on with Christians? Like, why do you sing, get up early on Sunday mornings, volunteer for Easter egg things? And why do, why do Christians do these things? Is it because they think they're better than us? Is that because? No. We do these things because we believe that our sin has been placed on Jesus. But yet for the joy set before him, he paid for your sin and mine and now gives us his righteousness. And now all of us in the room, we're not, we're not, we don't think we're better than anyone because we're Christians. In fact, Christianity ought to make you more humble than anyone. But the essence of Christianity is not that we're better than anyone, but it's rather we know that Jesus is better. And that Jesus has taken all that we deserve to be punished for and he has placed it upon himself and has poured out his very own wrath toward those things onto himself. That is the message of Christianity. For God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. He drank our cup so that we could drink his. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the cross. Um, God, thank you that you on the cross took more than nails that day. You took our sin and our shame and our sickness and our death. It was nailed to the cross with you. It was put into the tomb with you. But three days later, you defeated the tomb and thereby defeated sin, sickness, death, shame, You defeated those things so we now no longer have to live as slaves to those things because you have defeated them for us, God. We can now drink the cup of salvation over and over and over and over again because it is overflowing with your grace. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene, the song goes, and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. For me, it was in the garden. He prayed not my will, but thine. He had no tears for his own griefs, but he sweat drops of blood for mine. He took my sin and my sorrow and made them his very own. He bore my burden to Calvary and suffered and died alone. And so in your name we pray.